Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And listeners, we got to be honest with you. This episode that we're about to do, focusing on the uh, straight-up racist stereotype of the welfare queen. Mm-hmm. Did not start uh, as, you know, we didn't start out intending to do this episode. No. We intended to do an episode looking at women and social work. Which we'll do eventually. Oh, yeah. We're going to revisit. Because it is just a rich topic full of amazing, forward-thinking, innovative women such as Jane Addams, you know, one of the really founders of social work. Mm -hmm. Um but first of all, as we started researching, you realize, oh, this is this a huge, this is a huge topic, huge, hard, hard to pack into one episode. And then it just so happened that as we were researching this, the 20th anniversary of so-called welfare reform came and went. And with that, um, this term, the stigmatizing, awful term, welfare queen came up. Mm-hmm. And so since welfare queens, that that stereotype, that controlling image, and we're going to talk more about what that exactly means, since it encapsulates so much of the stigma against welfare and even social work in general, um, we felt like it was worth just focusing in on this because you have so many intersections of race and gender and class and the ongoing issue of poverty and motherhood in the and, United States. And who's considered a worthy citizen Ooh. and who's not. Yes. Yes. The whole rhetoric of deserving versus undeserving poor. Yeah. And there's there's so much so much just embedded racism and classism that is uh, stitched up with all of this. Um, so we're going to try to untangle some of that um, and hopefully not get too uh, caught up in all of the admittedly confusing bureaucracy that can quickly overtake. Yeah, this is just going to devolve into us screaming the F word a lot. <laughs> uh, so let's go back to welfare reform quickly. So August 22nd. 2016 marked the 20th anniversary of so-called welfare reform. Uh, this was a, a key piece of legislation that President Bill Clinton signed into law. It was the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act, and it replaced old school welfare a.k.a. aid to families with dependent children. And so now, in lieu of that, uh, welfare doesn't really exist anymore. A lot of people might not know that. Welfare is uh, now what's called temporary assistance for needy families. Yeah, I mean, there were some good intentions behind this. The idea was to connect poor families with employment so that they wouldn't need welfare. And it also connect them to programs like job training and child care and other support. I mean, that sounds great. Like, what could go wrong? Um and, and, you know, this, this shift did cut the welfare recipients in half by the year 2000 to just 6.3 million people receiving it down from the 1994 peak of 14.2 million people. 
And yeah, I mean, a lot of millions, in fact, a lot of low income single mothers in particular have found work and taken care of their families thanks to food stamp programs and the earned income tax credit. But there are some not so great realities that are behind all of this. Yeah. And you have to keep in mind, too, that in 96, when Clinton signed this legislation, the economy was going like gangbusters. Um, so that was one reason why you see within a four-year period after it's signed into law, this major uptick in the employment of low-income single moms, um, but definitely with influence from uh, the Great Recession happening, you have uh, really controversial aspects of uh, TANF that temporary assistance for needy families, that was controversial at the time. I mean, a lot of uh, people, a lot of feminists and activists protested it uh, because they felt like it was too punitive and didn't address more systemic problems of poverty. Um, and and the T in TANF is temporary because the lifetime limit on benefits is five years. So unlike uh, welfare that you could potentially stay on indefinitely if you needed it, um, this has that limit. And you also have problems with TAMF recipients having a hard time finding and keeping jobs. Uh, that job training is a required part of being of receiving that assistance and going to the job training, though, can mean losing jobs that mothers often women often already have. But one major wrinkle in how this legislation is architected is a it uh, has not kept up with inflation. Uh, Republicans actually vetoed that. Um, so you have funding down in general, um, and also you have it being dispersed through state block grants, which means that Uncle Sam or Aunt Samantha, since this is a feminist podcast, I'm just kidding, it can be Uncle Sam, um, writes a check and is like, okay, Louisiana, here you go, here is your uh, your federal funding. And Louisiana can then decide, or whatever state we're in, can then decide how they want to split up that cash. And I call that Louisiana because they're only 4% of poor families receive TAMF. 4%, 6,000 families, a tiny, tiny, tiny group of people because only 8% of its welfare, federal welfare grants are used on cash benefits and only 1% are used on jobs programs. So the rest is just being diverted? Yeah, it's being diverted to other programs, to administrative costs. I mean, it's not like they can take that money and build like roads and bridges instead. Um, But there are so many other types of uh, programs that they can, and ways that they can move that money around because of so many budget cuts Mm -hmm. um, that started really with the Great Recession. It is up to, you know, the states to decide how much they really how much they really want to invest in these communities. Mm, Yeah. So on average in the U.S., about 50 percent of these grants are used on actual benefits, job training and child care. And 34 percent are spent elsewhere. 
Yeah, there's this weird side of things where only 23% of families with children living in poverty receive TANF. Um, and overall poverty and deep poverty is higher than it was in 1996. Yeah, so I mean, one reason why you have such a low proportion of those families receiving this assistance is because uh, during this time, you also have uh, a lot more funding going to uh, SNAP, which is the food stamps mm-hmm. program. Um, and you also have the earned income tax credit, which has been really helpful for a lot of um, working families in poverty, but there's that issue of deep poverty, which is pretty much equivalent to living on $2 a day. So am I wrong in feeling like it seems like things are just shifted where instead of saying like, here's this um, little sack of, of money, we're just going to take that money and put it into other areas rather than just helping you. And some of it will go to childcare things and some of it will go to food stamps. But yeah, I mean, and some goes to funding things like Head Start programs, which are really important. But there's still that issue of jobs and um, helping also helping low income single mothers uh, pursue higher education. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's just there's just a lot that isn't accounted for consistently. Yeah, because while it's great to fund something like Head Start, I mean, our mothers well, and fathers, too, but our family's not struggling to like buy backpacks and markers for their kids to go back to school. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there have been a lot of uh, stories recently because of the 20th anniversary kind mm-hmm. of evaluating whether welfare reform, so to speak, really reformed much. And uh, one of the NPR stories was talking to a mother who, uh, you know, receives assistance. She lives in a homeless shelter and she can still, you know, barely afford to buy her kids uh, just back to school supplies that they might need. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is already Really contradicting to this racist portrayal of the welfare queen, where it's like, uh, you know, people are just sitting back, just getting their government checks and living high on the hog when, of course, that's not the case at all. But also what you have here, too, is the product of a highly polarized political system where for years now, Republicans um, have used a lot of dog whistle politics um, talking about talking down about so-called entitlement programs and how, you know, taxpayers are just, you know, paying for all of these things. Yeah, what do you think Social Security is? Oh, we're going to get to that, Caroline. <laughs> oh, we I are going to get to that. I can't wait. Um, and if Hillary Clinton is elected president, it is going to be interesting to see what happens on the welfare front, because she has been asked about this a lot on the campaign trail, because, mm-hmm. of course, Bill Clinton signed this well, controversial legislation. And in interviews in the 1990s, she was very explicit, too, about reforms to welfare and saying that basically people needed to bootstrap better. Yeah. And one important aspect of TAMP is that it did pivot f- attention more to Jobs connecting, you know, recipients straight to jobs. Uh, but obviously it hasn't done a terrific job with that. And she's acknowledged that, too, in more recent interviews saying, like, yeah, we need to reevaluate what's going on. And for today's episode, we are really going to focus on the stigmatizing of low income black single mothers, usually on public assistance and sort of how all of this Hot mess 
came to be because like you said this like relates to this old school idea of the deserving versus the undeserving poor you have uh, racialized divisions between social insurance mm-hmm. which is social security and unemployment insurance that rewards work versus welfare or public assistance that has stigmatized unemployment. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole social insurance thing, recipients aren't scrutinized. It was originally intended for white male workers and their wives, a.k.a. citizens, in how we treat them, uh, versus welfare, which stigmatizes unemployment. Recipients are heavily scrutinized and stereotyped as irresponsible. Uh, they have to go through judgmental caseworkers, and they are viewed in this light as more like subjects of the government versus, you know, active citizens of the country. Well, and that makes sense, unfortunately, because a lot of these programs and the predecessors to these programs begin developing right on the heels of abolition, mm-hmm. where you have, you know, African-Americans who are fighting tooth and nail for full citizenship, especially women of color Mm -hmm. um, who are facing double discrimination everywhere they turn. Um, And when we look at this so-called welfare queen, it is a racist, sexist, controlling image that perpetuates the myth that African-American single mothers are receiving government assistance because they are lazy, they're promiscuous, and they're just morally bankrupt fraudsters who are swindling hardworking taxpayers and perpetuating this so-called culture of poverty. Um, and I call it a controlling image rather than a stereotype because that's what sociologist Patricia Hill Collins, who's a badass, calls it. Um, because a controlling image is a stereotype that is so strong that it exerts control not only over the people that it allegedly represents, but is also used as justification to discriminate against them. Mm-hmm. And I have a vocabulary question really quickly for social workers who are listening to this episode, because we are using welfare and public assistance interchangeably. And I don't know if that is accurate, if that language is correct. So if someone can let me know, like it's not something that came up explicitly in our research, but I have a feeling that welfare refers to something like programmatically different than public assistance. I don't know. I wish I could tell you. I know. That's why I'm asking yeah. for social workers to let me know. I mean, and this is also just a heads up that we are aware that our language might not be precise. Yeah, this book by Patricia Hill Collins, uh, Black Feminist Thought, was such an instructive look at the issues of race and class and sexism that come up in these discussions about welfare. Um, because you've got the welfare mother who's... Ba- this is basically the bad mother stereotype that became the welfare queen that we hear talked about in the media. And this is basically a stereotype that's like the stereotype of the mammy, but she's even 
lazier. And that goes back to what Christian was talking earlier about the controlling image, because this stereotyping of black people as lazy uh, provides the ideological justification, as Collins writes, for efforts to harness black women's fertility to the needs of a changing political economy. This goes back to, I believe it was our Mothers of Gynecology episode where we talked about how when black people were enslaved, uh, slave owners were like, yes, produce more offspring so that we can get more slaves. But as soon as slavery as an institution is ended, oh, God, black people having children is something to be stopped. We have to control black women's fertility. Well, and it also harkens to our uh, episode on the sterilization mm-hmm. of right. African-American women, yeah. particularly in the 50s and 60s. So, I mean, when we talk about reproductive rights, it's so critical that we remember that Historically, in the United States, black women's fertility and motherhood has been something that for so long uh, was almost not their own, you know, in terms of the whether it's a slave owner controlling it or a doctor forcibly sterilizing them. Mm -hmm. And this is all why when we think about reproductive rights, it's so critical to take an intersectional approach because historically in the United States, black women's fertility and motherhood have continually been under siege. Yeah. You know, so rarely has it been something that is so prized and protected in the way that it is and has been for white women. Correct. So if we look at then uh, the welfare queen, as Patricia Hill Collins describes it, um, she calls it a controlling image that points to working class black women as really the symptoms of our deteriorating state. I mean, it's they're just scapegoats mm-hmm. over and over and over again for what is bigger picture, a lot of institutionalized racism, institutionalized racism as it intersects with our anxieties about the state of society and our economy. But I thought this point that Collins made about the welfare queen stereotype or controlling image was so perfect and on the nose. Uh, She said that she's typically portrayed as an unwed mother and she violates one cardinal tenet of white male dominated ideology. She is a woman alone. As a result, her treatment reinforces the dominant gender ideology, positing that a woman's true worth and financial security should occur through heterosexual marriage. And that dominant gender ideology was baked into the social work structure, like the the, the initial welfare structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to get into more of that. And it's the reason why, you know, we have a lot of these issues today. But if we dig a little bit deeper into these stereotypes, uh, we came across a paper uh, on black womanhood and social policy, which uh, links the welfare queen rhetoric to tropes of the mammy, as you've already mentioned, and also Sapphire and Jezebel. Um, so you have that claim, that stereotypical claim that welfare mothers are unmarried and they tend to have a lot of children. They don't want to work. They lack moral character and have just abandoned traditional family values in quotes. And so um, 
the scholar notes how in the 1980s, you have the welfare queen hearkening that mammy trope with her presumed obesity that signaled her laziness, but at the same time, abundant food choices. The whole idea of like, well, she's just, you know, she doesn't have to work, but she can still just like sit around and eat whatever she wants all day. Which is, of course, then related to the whole food stamp stereotypes that we get that you're just using your food stamps to buy. There's either the stereotype that you're just using your food stamps to buy like Cheetos and Coke or you're using them to buy lobster and, you know, fancy steak dinners. And then in the 90s, as the public face of welfare shifted to a, quote, young inner city teenage mother, that harkens to the sapphire trope of the hypersexualized black woman who is just driven by her libido with no interest in child rearing. And as the paper notes, both of these stereotypes project poor black women as unfit mothers, breeders of lustful sons and unchaste daughters. So basically saying that it's black women's fault that they are creating children like this and these children then learn these horrible habits from them and don't want to break out of this cycle of poverty and food stamp use. It's basically blaming the people in the system for both creating poverty and like benefiting from poverty. And it harps on so many racialized fears when you look at the politics of it and how um, conservatives will then accuse liberals of also perpetuating a system because we're just all about, you know, high taxes and entitlements. And, uh, you know, as a result, our workforce is just deteriorating. Um, and this leads us to a, a plot twist because here comes Ronald Reagan in 1976. And Ronald Reagan really made welfare queen a household term. Yeah, she was a central character in his stump speeches of 1976. And he talks about how in Chicago, they found this woman who holds the record. He said that she used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, Social Security, veterans benefits for non-existent deceased veteran husbands, as well as welfare. And uh, the the big most often cited moment of these speeches is that when he tells the audience that her tax-free cash income alone has been running up to $150,000 a year, there's a gasp from the audience. They're horrified. Who is this terrible woman? And, I mean, what is what Reagan is doing here is... Uh, dog whistling that, you know, the welfare queen is we we know who, who you're talking about. We know that you are implying that she is low income, that she's African-American and that she is a single mother and that she's everywhere. You know, there's just this this one just happens to stand out. But all these women are just fraudulent. They're driving their Cadillacs to go pick up their welfare check. That's always the thing. That is always the thing. Whenever you hear people not even like citing Ronald Reagan or citing this period in history when this was talked about all the time. It's always the stereotype of the woman in fur coats and in a Cadillac. It's almost like it's entered our subconscious as a country that we just stereotype all of these people as that woman. All of the people who have ever needed money or financial assistance of any kind. Well, how dare a woman of color 
indulge in conspicuous consumption. Mm. You know, you're about to tip over some, you know, societal balance, if that's the case. Well, the funny thing about the whole welfare queen stereotype, especially with Ronald Reagan relaying the story, is that this character that he's citing is based on a real person. And we don't mean that in the way of like, the haters mean it of like, oh, this woman's everywhere. All these welfare recipients in their fur coats. But the welfare queen with all of these different identities, uh, that term was actually coined by a journalist who was covering an actual woman. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like today, a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, that is obviously uh, racist rhetoric that Ronald Reagan was using. And that's totally true. I mean, he was oh, yeah. uh, he was gunning for white votes um, and he was successful, not in 76, but he was successful in 1980 with that. Um, but the fact or fiction doesn't even matter. I mean, it's besides the point now because those two words were so successful at encapsulating all and stoking all of the racist and classist anxieties of these usually more working class white people. And we're going to get into who that real woman was, um, but also how all of this happened in the first place, how we got to 1976 with the Gipper talking about welfare queens around the country when we come right back from a quick break. So before we introduce you to that Chicago woman with all of those different fake names, uh, we want to offer a little welfare plus women history. Because surprise, welfare, as we think of it, was initially set up for white women. And it was set up for white women not to get jobs, but to stay home and take care of children, thus fulfilling their proper feminine duties of child rearing and domestic caretaking. Yeah, because you still, you know, if a, if a white man dies, uh, you have to be able to provide the breadwinner salary for the woman to enable her to preserve her sphere, to stay at home with the children, cooking and baking and mothering. Because God forbid she leaves the house and get a job. Of course, those attitudes were not extended to black women who were expected. It was just expected that they would be working outside the house. Well, because their their bodies, especially at that time, had for so long just been rendered vessels of labor. You know, whether it is them themselves working or um, if they are enslaved owners wanting them to get pregnant so that they could then, you know, produce more laborers, which is all just really disgusting when you think about it all at once. Um, and this is something that Gary Delgado and Rebecca Gordon write about in the book From Poverty to Punishment, How Welfare Reform Punishes the Poor. Uh, and they say, quote, at first, welfare is based on a specific, if unarticulated, ideology of gender roles and race. And they go on to talk about, you know, how the the idea is that white women's primary responsibility is child rearing and unpaid domestic labor, whereas white dudes job is to be family breadwinners. And so 
With the introduction of welfare, they write, the government assumed financial responsibility when no other breadwinner was available. White widows were cast as, quote, deserving damsels in distress. Yeah, and a lot of this goes back to the progressive era, with which I have a love-hate relationship. Uh, progressive era, you get a lot of really badass ladies coming out who are like advocating for the marginalized and want to change the world and get the vote and all this stuff. You also get a lot of that bootstrapping rhetoric of like, it's poor people are poor because they're poor and it's their fault yeah. for being poor because they're poor. And, and because of poverty, they lack character and we just need to teach them character. Yeah, so love-hate uh, relationship with that era. Um, but yeah, so if you go back to the Civil War, for instance, uh, about 620,000 men were killed, which left behind a lot of white widows that presumably needed to be cared for so that they could maintain their hearth and home status, basically. Yeah, and, and at this time, any kind of assistance would have come from charitable organizations, religious organizations. Um, I mean, historically, single mothers would have been taken care of by the church. And after the Civil War, you also have massive industrialization and urbanization that leads to an uptick in uh, out-of-wedlock pregnancies. So in response, you have all of these like pretty well-meaning white progressive era women who are advocating for what's called maternalist legislation, essentially, you know, setting up mother's aid programs um, and, and trying to figure out whether the government could possibly help sort of fill in gaps where private philanthropy and charity leaves off. But it's important to remember that these progressive era women while they lived in the so-called progressive era, were not so progressive in terms of their perception of the proper role for women and the intended outcome of of mother's aid because they weren't saying, you know, let's let's give these women the resources that they need in order to uh, to allow them to support themselves and their children, but rather let's give them the support they need so that they can fulfill traditional gender roles. Well, yeah. And I mean, so this is where my love hate comes in, because these elitist progressive era women might have managed to mobilize disenfranchised women and spur legislators to act uh, on behalf of, you know, mothers. Um, but they relied on these fundamentalist notions of gender and the patriarchal family norm. And therefore, through their efforts, were basically trying to exert social control on poor immigrant families, not just fellow white ladies, but immigrant families as well. Of course, not black families, just poor immigrant families, where I guess they thought the black families were beyond help. Um, and hey, these people need to conform to American standards. So like we need to support them so that they're not living in that immigrant poverty and in the meantime, get them to completely integrate into American society. Yeah. And, and- and of course, it, providing resources and assistance for white immigrant women is not the problem here. The problem here is that their definition of a suitable home uh, necessarily included white skin color and yeah. completely overlooked uh, black women. But you also have during this era a lot of black women reformers who are noticing all of this and are obviously like engaged in their communities. And what they're doing during this time is advocating for assistance for 
working mothers mm-hmm. instead of fostering economic dependence on men, as well as advocating for household work to be considered work, not just maternal compulsion. Yeah, didn't they? I can't remember what organization it was, but it was like a working women's organization. And the these activists invited mothers and housewives to be a part of it because they recognize that the work you do at home is work. And also too, think about how domestic labor, paid domestic labor was one of the only jobs available to working class black women at the time as well, Mm -hmm. working in white homes. Right. So all sorts of layers to this and When we get to 1909, uh, the landmark White House conference on the care of dependent children takes place. And uh, this is essentially the first meeting of charitable organizations and philanthropists coming in saying like, okay, we have this issue, especially in terms of urbanization with mothers living in poverty. And really the only option right now is for those women to put their kids in orphanages. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. You might have had a, uh, a foster care system that was starting to develop, but really the go-to was an orphanage. And then uh, indigent women and men might live in almshouses where the living conditions were just deplorable. And Illinois, though, really led the charge in terms of government assistance because in 1911, it became uh, the first state to pass a mother's pension law, which authorized county governments to provide grants to mothers with dependent children. And this really caught on. By 1919, you have 39 states that are uh, providing these with restrictions. Yeah, I mean, some restricted grants to widows only. Um, others offered money to divorced or deserted mothers. Only Michigan and Nebraska offered this support to unwed mothers. And really surprising to no one is that the southern states were slow to enact these provisions. And these provisions were afforded pretty much exclusively to white women still. Uh, by 1931, just a scant 3% of mother's aid recipients were black. But then when the Great Depression rolls around, states' mother's aid programs run dry. So this is when we get the New Deal, the federal government steps in. And once it becomes, poverty becomes such a massive nationwide issue, you do see this perspective shift that, hmm, perhaps the economy and not just moral failing can cause poverty. And so that allows for the development of an otherwise unpalatable nationwide welfare system. Hashtag deserving poor. Yeah, the idea that, oh, we'll see it's okay if it's because of the economy, like an outside factor. But if it's something that you're doing or that we perceive you to be doing, then you are hashtag undeserving. Yeah, or if the color of our skin leads us to just assume. Well, exactly. Yeah, that you're deviant in the first place. Um, So in 1935, we have the landmark passage of the Social Security Act, which included aid to families with dependent children. And that essentially was welfare. But it was never intended to be a long-term fix. And it was certainly not intended 
to assist black women. Instead, these policy architects figured that future male breadwinners would be paying into Social Security. And so when they died, their widows would not have to rely on mother's pensions. Mm -hmm. They could then access Social Security benefits. And in the meantime, you kind of have the stopgap measure of Welfare, because in the meantime, before the Social Security coffers, you know, kind of build up, these white widows can be compensated for essentially giving birth to future laborers. You hear that, women? You're a bunch of tools. Ugh. Breeders. Yeah. God. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was that assumption that all women across the board would pursue that moral family ethic of marriage to a strong white man who would provide for her and then die before her. Yeah. But here we get uh, the gendering of public assistance policy where you have Social Security and unemployment insurance that largely benefited white men because there were far more white men who would be um, working outside the home at that time than women. And that is a fixed entitlement. Yeah, you just get it. You deserve it. it because you're a citizen. Yeah. You deserve it. And so there's working. no there's no shame. Yeah. And white widows eventually, you know, would be rolled into social security benefits. Because you deserve it, because you're white. Yeah. And, and and you didn't mean to become poor. You couldn't control your husband dying. Yeah. That we know of. <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes to the aid to families with dependent children, that, say, divorced moms or single moms, low-income mothers might try to access, they had to jump through so many hoops not only to get it, but also to keep it. Well, and lest you think that all of these black mothers in question were just sitting there accepting their poor treatment, there were a lot of black activists during this time who were already arguing that the investigation of their lives was a violation of citizenship rights. And I mean, it's important to use words like citizen versus subject, because, again, restating what we said earlier, black families, particularly black women, were being treated as subjects of a government versus members and active participants of it. And it's I mean, that's how they were treated. And when we say surveillance, like we're not using hyperbole because uh, these AFCD caseworkers were very interested in recipients' personal lives. They got to determine who received aid, who had a suitable home um, to receive that um, aid, and they would also police their sexual activity because they wanted to make sure that that family ethic was being upheld. So, I mean, it bears repeating Yet again, that, that you also get that cultural division between how these programs are viewed. Social Security, you just get it and you deserve it. It's a thing that you're entitled to, but let's not call it an entitlement program versus something like uh, the welfare program that black mothers were getting, which it's like, oh, well, I don't know if you really deserve this. This is a lot of help we're giving you. We better check up on you. And we know how hypersexual women of color can be. I don't know that they're really going to be suitable. There are all those man of the house regulations where it's like, no, 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 ladies, you can't have a man over. No, we don't want to de-incentivize marriage. You've already, you're already a single mother. So from the 1930s to 1962, 
uh, AFTC grew from just a few hundred thousand recipients to 3.6 million by 1962. But the thing is, black recipients, especially in the South, had to fight for it because the federal government was allowing individual states to define those eligibility requirements. Well, and down to... Caseworkers, too. Um, there was a paper I was looking at about all of this, which noted how ironic this program quickly became because it functioned much like a private charity because they, you know, AFCD caseworkers were empowered to really pick and choose who received this aid. And, and up until the 1960s, households that included children of color, and children born out of wedlock did not meet requirements for suitable homes. So isn't that so convenient if you don't want to give any assistance to black mothers? That's kind of a that's a jerk move. It's a super jerk move. And so you have, I mean, activism saying, like, this is not OK. You mm-hmm. have a lot of court cases. Um, and finally, you have in 1961 AFCD expanding it's qualifying definition of a of a deprived child to include one who has an unemployed parent, which did bring more women of color into the program. Um, and it's really in the 60s that you start to see a lot more um, women receiving this, uh, partly because in 1964, LBJ declares the war on poverty but also because of activism by organizations like the National Welfare Rights Organization, which was the first movement to create a distinct political identity among low-income black women. And that's the group that invited mothers to be a part of their ranks because their work mattered, too. But even within... The broader black community, the National Welfare Rights Organization was controversial at times because it was so largely composed of lower income women who, even among, you know, black activists, their voices had been often marginalized, especially within the civil rights movement. So, yeah, around the time that LBJ declares the war on poverty, there is a growing recognition in this country of just the the yawning gap between the rich and the poor and just how bad people in poverty in this country did have it. Um, but money from this so-called war on poverty helped fund the food stamp program becoming permanent. Uh, it established the Head Start program. You see free and subsidized school breakfasts and lunches. Uh, you also get the creation of Medicare and Medicaid, which to me, I always am like, I just kind of shake my head when people criticize uh, recipients of things like welfare, because even though it's not called welfare anymore, um, because like, are you on... You on Medicaid? All mm-hmm. right. You yeah. get Social Security? Mm-hmm. 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 And as a result of a lot of this, between 1964 and 1976, the number of Americans receiving cash assistance, it's that cash assistance part that always, you know, makes people so uneasy. Oh, we're just, the government's just an ATM. Uh, the number of Americans receiving cash assistance through AFDC nearly tripled from 4.2 million Americans to 11.3 million. And this is when white taxpayers really start to lose their chill over all of this, because, of course, a lot of those recipients are women of color. And what doesn't help is the 1965 publication of uh, what's nicknamed the Moynihan Report, which really laid the 
political foundation for the whole welfare queen construct. And the Moynihan Report is uh, the shorthand name for a book called The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, written by a dude named Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who argued that black, quote, matriarchal structure is the root of deviance because these women are too domineering to be nurturers or attract mates, thus inspiring low education, delinquency, and single motherhood. Oh, my God. Are we we're like reliving a horrifically nightmarish real life scenario of our uh, romantic comedy episode about the career woman? Oh, God. Yeah. Too domineering. But isn't it so much easier to just uh, blame a really marginalized group for this quote unquote culture of poverty than actually like fixing the problem? Just being like, you know what? It's 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 these women. It's these women's fault. We're never going to hear from them because we never like validate or elevate their experiences and voices. But this is like you still see this on Twitter. Oh, our friend, God, yeah. our friend, friend of the podcast, Raquel Willis, was like always dealing with this on Twitter of of men tweeting at her about like these independent black women these days. You know, they're just not leaving any room for men. If you stop devaluing men, it's like who, what? And speaking of our rom com series, in 1974. A what can be termed a romantic comedy. I first ran across it when researching for our episode on uh, romantic comedies about people of color. And it's this film, Claudine, which stars Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones. And Diane Carroll is Claudine. And she is a single mother of six living on welfare and James Earl Jones comes into her life and uh, they fall in love. His name is Roop, I believe. And Diane Carroll is, or Claudine, is earning some money outside the home, which, of course, is a big no-no if you are on welfare. And whenever the caseworker, the white caseworker, would come by, she would hide any sign of, you know, any extra income coming in. Um, one time, the caseworker comes over and... James Earl Jones's character has left like a six pack of beer and some food in the fridge. And so she docks her, um, you know, her welfare check, you know, taking off the value of the beer and the food. Um, and really, it's it's a social commentary on this trap that welfare became for a lot, a lot, a lot of single mothers. And there's this quote from the movie, Claudine is extremely frustrated and says, if I don't feed my kids, it's child neglect. If I go out and get a job and make a little money on the side, then that's cheating. If I stay at home, I'm lazy. I can't win. Yeah, I mean, that basically, I mean, that sums up so many of the issues that come up around these programs. Yeah, and two years later, you have Ronald Reagan making welfare queen a household term that further arouses more ire against public assistance. Yeah. So we told you earlier that this welfare queen, <laughs> so to speak, that Ronald Reagan is citing it was a real woman. And there's a fascinating, fascinating long form piece over at Slate by Josh Levin 
introducing readers to this woman named Linda Taylor, who was a massive con artist and very likely a legitimate psychopath who used and abused and hustled and possibly murdered uh, just through the decades in order to get as much money as possible, including stealing people's fur coats. (laughs) Yeah, her welfare fraud is a footnote. Yeah. And her criminality. Yeah, no kidding, compared to everything else she did. Yeah, and um, the term, like you said earlier, was coined by Chicago Tribune reporter George Bliss, um, who was covering Taylor's trial. Um, and Bliss had been trying to draw attention to widespread disarray in the Illinois Public Aid Office. There was a lot of mismanagement happening. No big surprise when you have giant government bureaucracies. Uh, sometimes, you know, things things run amok. But that's not a sexy story. Bureaucracy is not interesting. That's not an interesting headline. And he was getting frustrated because no one's paying attention to this really important issue until... He comes up with the welfare queen and suddenly, oh, now that we have a face and now that we have this, you know, face that has been scapegoated and uh, objectified for so long. Oh, now everyone's paying attention. Well, and the thing is, too, like we also see the alignment in her in this Linda Taylor person slash all of the 50 million different aliases that she went by. We see the alignment of. The welfare queen and blackness. But the thing is, Linda Taylor specifically was a shapeshifter when it came to race. Like, according to, I mean, Josh Levin, like, God bless him. He went into such heavy, detailed research in terms of this woman's life and her background and her story and everything. And according to the census, when she was a child, she was listed as a white girl in a white family. But she had darker skin And they were like, maybe it's from some like Native American or black ancestor. We're not really sure. But basically her skin was dark enough that she was able to pass as black when it was convenient, but also able to pass as white when it suited her as well. She even passed as Filipino. She passed as, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not black or white. This is not a black or white issue. This is like, she was passing as whatever she needed to pass as in order to steal, in order to take advantage of, in order to kidnap. I mean, did all of this, though, remind you a little bit of Rachel Dolezal? Oh, God. Hopefully she's never kidnapped anyone. <laughs> the white woman who claims to be transracial. Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> We don't even have time to go into yeah, it's insane. all of Taylor's criminality. But, I mean, she was a con artist. She was a bigamist, had, like, multiple husbands at a time so that she could, um, so that then they could die, in quotes, and she could get government funds for that. She was a kidnapper, an identity thief. Um, and despite her criminality, though, she was only convicted on bilking $8,000 of government funds in 1974. And that conviction just stands in such stark contrast to the societal impact of Ronald Reagan spreading her alleged story, you know, and Mm -hmm. only and only focusing in on one aspect of it. But as a result, welfare investigations and criminalization for fraud went through the roof. If you think that those caseworkers were scrutinizing welfare recipients before that, oh, 
this time. Mm. Well, because now there was a face. There was a, a, a buffered, bejeweled face to go with all of these fears. And they would set up uh, in different. This was focused more on Chicago. Um, but they set up hotlines where people could call in and report folks that they thought were uh, cheating on welfare. So, I mean, you have these hotlines getting flooded with calls and it's just it's just a mess. And since then, I mean, not to just gloss over a lot more history, but we have to. Since then, the welfare queen, even though she has been largely debunked, I think, in in, uh, today's commentary, but her specter is still there. The ani- oh. the animus behind it is absolutely still there. Yeah, because it's an easy way. It's almost like an easy way to disengage yourself or dissociate yourself from your racism. Because you can be like, well, no, it's not that I'm racist. It's just that these welfare queens who happen to be black women are abusing the system. And that is an especially potent um argument to make to low income white people. Yeah, because it plays on all of those racialized fears. So you see, you know, repeated time and again. Um and in sociological terms, the welfare queen has become what's called a narrative script or presumed common knowledge that most welfare recipients are women, uh even though in reality, most welfare recipients are children um, and they're specifically black single women and that it, this whole situation must be the product of their moral failing and their, you know, de-incentivized work ethic or non-existent work ethic. Yeah. Lie down, progressive era. You're done. And that's what you still hear. Uh, and I'm. I don't remember it directly, because if you remember every Donald Trump quote, your mind would just turn to garbage. <laughs> um, but in researching this piece, uh, of course, he's played on this rhetoric. I mean, he's, he hasn't used the words welfare queen, but he doesn't have to. Um, hashtag dog whistle politics. Uh, but he does talk about, you know, entitlements and de-incentivizing work. We're going to get people back to work because people want to. Some people want to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And before we wrap up, though, we do want to hop back to the, a couple of realities for single moms today on public assistance. And the fact of the matter is, it is tough. There is nothing queenly about it. And fraud does exist, but it's not as simple as fraud only being perpetuated by recipients. You have a whole system set up. Yeah, well, so, I mean, speaking of that fraud, TANF fraud is, there's like a 2% max fraud rate. And across the board, it's likelier to be instigated by the providers rather than the actual recipients of uh, public assistance. And a lot of that is not necessarily people being like, I'm going to game the government, my employer, but rather like just deficiencies in the system itself. Yeah, I'm being overwhelmed. I mean, you have caseworkers who are probably overloaded. You have mismanagement going on. And especially in terms of Medicaid and Medicare, you do have a lot of provider fraud happening. Um, and uh, if we look, though, at the situation, the income situation for uh, single mothers on public assistance, 
on average, Bureau of Labor Statistics data find that just families in general receiving public assistance spend uh, $30,582 a year, very precise, compared to 66000 for families not on public assistance. And the Atlantic pointed that out um, to sort of settle the score on this idea that, oh, you know, the entitlement programs are allowing these families to live high on the hog and buy lobster. Yeah, like I didn't buy a new PlayStation and all these people on welfare buying PlayStations left and right and lobsters to put on top of the PlayStation. It's the decoration and it's delicious. But if we talk about lobster, uh, families receiving assistance spend about a third less on food, half as much on housing and 60 percent less on entertainment. So we've got some debunking going on there. And uh, if we look at SNAP benefits, the food stamps program, n- over 90 percent of that money assist people who are elderly, seriously disabled or members of working households, not able bodied working age Americans who just choose not to work. Yeah. And and so, I mean, just imagine the massive damage that's being done by us, like willfully buying into these stereotypes and these narratives about who is on public assistance and about how the system is like rife with welfare queens who are gaming it. I mean, again, that's not to say that fraud doesn't happen, but it's in such a minority of cases, it's almost non-existent. Yeah. And, and just how degrading it is to you know, point your finger at a group of people and say, like, you are categorically lazy and have no desire to improve your station in life. While kids raised um, in public assistance situations are statistically likelier to themselves receive public assistance later in life, many, many, many of them do not. They end up becoming middle class citizens because you do have really hard working single mothers who are not making anything, but are making it work for their kids. And that's why during the Obama administration, it has been such a big deal. The number of times, especially in big speeches such as State of the Union addresses, that he's called out the contributions, the positive contributions of single mothers, because for so long they've been really demonized in our society because of all of this stuff that we've been talking about. Well, and that's why all of the traps and strange loopholes uh, in these systems, that's why they're so heartbreaking, because, you, you know, you do read stories about mothers who were at least getting by and able to buy their kids supplies to go back to school and things like that until they hit some weird, you know, public assistance loophole and they were made homeless because kids who grow up homeless, they do perform a lot poorer in school. And so that does set up just a really unfortunate cycle for a lot of families. Yeah. And, and again, um, to any social workers listening, uh, Hopefully we're not conflating too much the caseworker situation under uh, AFDC versus today with uh, temporary assistance for needy families. And I'm curious to know mm-hmm. more about how individual cases are handled um, and regulations about who receives it. Yeah, and, please help us fill in the gap. Yeah, and whether it's gotten any better because, I mean, it's just, <laughs> as I was telling Caroline before we started recording this episode, this was such a puzzle to put together because it's such a big system. 
There is not a lot of clear information and it's so politicized as well that it's challenging to find objective information as well. So, I mean, we're relying a lot on academic sources as much as possible for this, but hopefully this has shed at least some historical light on today's situation. So with that, we want to hear all of your thoughts and feedback, how this resonated with you, whether you have, yeah, any information that can help us sort of fill in, uh, this broad conversation that we've just had. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. All right, I've got a letter here from Adriana, subject line, unicorns, with lots of uh, exclamation points. Okay, she says, thank you so much for covering this topic. I, too, was obsessed with unicorns when I was little and maybe still am. I think for me it had a lot to do with the unicorns and Fantasia you mentioned in the episode. The little flying horses were also the best. I mean, who wouldn't want to fly through a rainbow with them? Anyways, I promise I'm not the type of person who corrects people all the time, but I did notice that you made a small slip-up in Greek goddess names. Side note, a lot of you guys also are crazy about Greek mythology and have written in to tell us this, and you're so right. We just... We just got a little mixed up. And and Adriana's like really nice and sympathetic about it. She says, You mentioned that Athena was the virginal goddess of the hunt when actually it is Artemis. Athena is the goddess of wisdom, which, fun fact, is why there is a bust of her over the doorway of the Doe Library at UC Berkeley. In the Roman tradition, Artemis is known as Diana. You were right that she's associated with deer, and not only because she hunted them in the forest. In Ovid's Metamorphoses, a man named Acteon is hunting with his hounds in the woods when he discovers Diana and her nymphs bathing. This is a sight no man is supposed to see because Diana is a virgin goddess. She notices him watching and, furious, turns him into a deer as punishment for spying on her. He runs away and is later killed by his own hounds. Acteon's transformation into a deer is really beautifully described in the poem and I definitely recommend reading it. I like the Ted Hughes translation myself. Thank you so much for the work you do on this podcast. I very much enjoyed this episode. I just finished a master's in Renaissance literature at Cambridge. And let me tell you, there are a lot of weird and sometimes scary unicorn illustrations in Renaissance manuscripts and printed books. Well, we are definitely going to have to Google some of those, Adriana. So thank you so much for writing in. And I've got a letter here from Cynthia about our Lisa Frank episode, who writes, I grew up in a single mother household and lived in hand-me-downs from friends and relatives deep into my high school years. This made going to a school full of upper middle class kids extraordinarily challenging. However, despite the fact that we were always low on money and rarely looked stylish or cool, our mother always tried to give my siblings and me small things to help make us enjoy our childhood in any way possible. Welcome, super affordable, crazy, psychedelic Lisa Frank. During the height of her empire, I was in junior high school, and just like all the other girls and a few boys in my class, absolutely obsessed with all things Lisa. And because of how affordable the stickers and folders were, this was something I could finally be a part of, and I felt so cool. I had all the folders, notebooks, erasers, and stickers. My favorite were the cheetahs. I even got a hold of a binder at some point as a birthday gift. I created a vast sticker collection, which my classmates and I traded during recess, and I became the go-to Lisa Frank gal. It was awesome. 
Lisa Frank patterns had a way of making me truly happy at first gaze. Happiness and childhood innocence are things that I didn't really have as a kid. But whenever I flip through my Lisa Frank folders and notebooks and the carefully placed erasers on my desk that I never use, I felt happy and just like any other kid. Listening to your episode had me laughing with all the puns and jokes, but also super nostalgic for a time in my life when despite the challenges, I could escape on the back of a rainbow unicorn and visit trippy dolphins. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about women in welfare, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 